Thanks for listening to Matt McLaughlin History. Become a subscriber to receive exclusive bonus episodes, ad-free listening, early access to all episodes, and special member-only events. Click on the link in the show notes or visit patreon.com forward slash mmhistory. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello podcasters, it's Matt here and I wanted to invite you on a very special journey with me in the footsteps of the Anzacs. If you've always wanted to visit the Western Front, now is the time to do it. I am leading an exclusive tour in June this year, so it's only a few months away and we're going to walk the battlefields of the Western Front through France and Belgium in the footsteps of the Australian soldiers. And the best news is I'm joined by a very special guest. It's Ray Martin the famous, iconic Australian journalist and TV presenter, is going to come with us and he's going to share his experiences of reporting on history and studying history because Ray actually studied to be a history teacher before he became a journalist. In addition, he's a wonderful photographer, so he's going to share with us his techniques and his tricks and tips for getting the most out of your holiday photos. It's going to be a wonderful journey. It's about 10 days, departs from Paris in early June. It's going to be a really wonderful trip. So please come with us, walk in the footsteps of the Anzacs on the Western front it's the only tour i'm leading this year to the western front so if you want to come and walk with the anzacs i'd love to see you over there for more information visit battlefields.com.au a living history production this is the living history podcast broadcasting live across the airwaves Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and to an episode that I think will be confronting but is an important story that we tell because this month is the 75th anniversary of the Sandakan death marches in the Second World War, probably the most horrific chapter of several horrific chapters for the Australians in the Pacific War. And I wanted to look into this, it's an important story, it's one we probably don't know enough about and to join me to discuss it is Lynette Silver, AM, who is probably Australia's leading historian on the Sandakan death marches. Lynette, thank you so much for joining us on the program. It's a pleasure. Now, give us the backstory. How did these poor Australians end up in these Japanese camps in the first place? Because the, the story of the death marches is that the Australian soldiers were prisoners of the Japanese and then in 1945 were sent on these forced marches from camps in Borneo. How did these men end up in captivity in the first place? After the fall of Singapore, the Japanese found that they had tens of thousands of prisoners of war who should have killed themselves rather than get captured. So they were mouths that had to be fed and the Japanese decided to make use of their labour. I'm sure everybody's heard of the Burma Thai Railway where that consumed thousands of prisoners. But in July of 1942, the Japanese started, started to send the first batch of Australian prisoners to Sundakan in British North Borneo to build an airstrip. 
1,500 went with the first batch, another 500 followed the following April in 1943, and they were joined by about 700 British prisoners. This gave them a labour force of about 2,700 at the Sandakan camp, and um, their job was simply to um, level the land, clear it, and build a military airstrip for the Japanese. So that's why they were in Sandakan, the only reason. That sounds like pretty tough work in the jungles of Borneo for men who'd been captured and who were probably not in great conditions. Just paint us a picture for what it was like, that, that labour to build that airfield. Well, the labour was gruelling. Fortunately, the British had already decided to build an airstrip for defence reasons and all the big timber had been taken down, but there had been regrowth, which was scrubby and in the, in the jungle, uh, vines grow literally overnight. So there was a fair bit of clearing to go on. They had um, no tools other than um, pick and shovel and little baskets and their their task was to level out the bumps in the land and um, to make it suitable to land military aircraft. Um, they had to work six days a week. The guards in the beginning could be quite difficult, um, handed out quite a few beatings, but they had plenty of food, 770 grams of rice per man per day. And if you imagine 770 grams of rice being cooked up, it's a massive amount. This allowed them to trade with the locals at the airstrip and actually in the first few months people put on condition. Um, they were quite happy with their, their lot. Uh, it was probably no better or worse than any other labour camp the Japanese had. But it wasn't until 1943 that things started to go downhill. And that is because the Australians um, were in league with a local underground movement. They built a radio and um, the senior Australian officer involved had... Um, obtained arms from the Philippines, which were hidden in the jungle in order to have a possible uprising against the Japanese. Well, when they, this was found out by the secret police, or Kempi Tai, they swooped on the camp, and from then on, things weren't, went dramatically downhill for the prisoners of war. How much of the, the camp, the fact of the numbers of prisoners that were there, the conditions they were in, how much of this was known by people back in Australia? The authorities back in Australia? Well, nobody knew anything. Um, we, they didn't know that where the prison camp was or how many people were there until um, eight Australians who were uh, with the second party that came across in early 1943 managed to escape from the island that they were on temporarily and go to the nearby Philippines. Now, the Americans were there with the Philippine Liberation Army working against the Japanese, and they were able to get messages back to Australia. There, yes, there was a prison camp, and uh, eventually when um, the Australians were extracted in 1944 back to Australia by submarine, uh, a plan was put in train to rescue these prisoners of war. So it really wasn't until they could get them back and debrief them on what was going on that they had any real idea of how many were there and what they were doing. You said that things started to go downhill in 1943. Tell us, uh, tell us how conditions changed in the camp at that time. Well, the Japanese, of course, were infuriated to find out that there was a very uh, active um, underground movement working in Sandakan with the local people, and this had spread to the prisoner of war camp and that they were intent on um, you know, having an uprising. They found all this out and uh, dragged large numbers of prisoners off for interrogation, which really meant torture. Uh, the locals uh, were also tortured terribly and gave up names and bit by bit uh, the number of people involved got larger and larger until the Japanese had enough information from confessions to take a good number of people to trial. 
and uh, they went down to Kuching in Sarawak, where the main POW headquarters was, and were put on trial there for various crimes. Some were quite minor, others were um, capital charges. And at the end of that period, eight local people and the senior Australian officer were uh, executed. And that took place in early 1944. Well, back at Sundakan, things tightened up considerably. Um, the guards got tougher, the surveillance was much stricter, um, little privileges they'd had were cut back, and uh, towards the end of '44, the Japanese were not in such a good position as they'd been previously from the military point of view. They were losing the war. And as things got worse, um, Borneo was cut off by the Americans. They had submarines patrolling the, the coast, they had planes in the sky, and um, no, no store ships were getting through to the Japanese in Borneo, which meant that the food was being dramatically reduced. And, of course, the prisoners of war were also in this same situation. So gradually, from 770 grams of rice per man per day, which was what they started off with, by the time they got to the beginning of 1945, the rice ration was cut to 70, one-eleventh. Um, the reason this happened was because with the great amount of rice they had previously, the Australians had been canny enough to store the excess rice. The Japanese found out about this. They cut the issue to zero and told the Australians they had to use what they had in the camp. Now, they didn't know how long the war was going to go on, so they reduced it uh, to about 100 grams per person per day and then cut it back eventually to 70 now, the reason why they were able to last for some weeks on such reduced uh, rations was that the Americans and had bombed the, the uh, airstrip out of existence at Christmas of 1944. So we now had a big pool of prisoners of war. The death rate had been quite low. Uh, less than 100 had died until the end of 1944. Uh, but now the, the Japanese had all these people to feed and no-one's doing any work and therefore they're surplus to requirements. So the solution was to uh, decide to send about 455 of the fittest across to the West Coast to be used for labour over there and also to carry equipment for the Japanese from the east side of Borneo to the other. Now, I just said that the Americans had cut off Borneo with their submarines and planes. Uh, there was no way they could move these prisoners by sea, so the idea was to make them walk. Because things had uh, been getting difficult with the supply situation, the Japanese had set up a supply route overland through the mountains. They didn't cut the track. They went to local headmen, who, of course, loathed the Japanese. They were very pro-British. And when they were told they had to cut this track from one side virtually to the other, they decided to route it the worst way they possibly could. And they spent a lot of time working it out. It, they went through crocodile-infested swamps, up mountains when they should have been following easy river valleys, um, through a terribly dense jungle, into a great section of the middle part of Borneo, which had not even been surveyed by the British. It was unexplored and uninhabited. So this, the idea was to make life hard for the Japanese, and to their horror, they discovered at the end of January of 1945 that this group of prisoners of war was going to be sent across this track. Well, I'd like to get to the specifics of the march in a moment, but something you touched on there that I think is really important is the relationship between the Japanese and the local people of Borneo as well. Just tell us a little bit about that, because these people really suffered as well, didn't they? It wasn't just the prisoners. Oh, the, lo the local people had a terrible time. Uh, about 15% of the population 
died under Japanese occupation. Um, anybody who was Chinese was automatically highly suspect because the Japanese were very pro. The uh, Chinese were very pro-British. Um, the local uh, 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 Malays that were there weren't many Malays living there. They were kind of just kept themselves and and uh, they were prone to uh, accept a bag of rice to dob somebody in and give information. But the Chinese in particular were very stoic and they paid for it dearly. Uh, uh, after the um, Stra- Americans started to bomb Sundakan, the Japanese decided that the locals must be in league with the Americans who had now started to retake the Philippines. And therefore um, they rounded up these people and beheaded them in lots of up to one, 21 at a time, tortured them, uh, did terrible things. Um, but despite that, the, the Chinese um, did not uh, yield, I mean, amazingly brave people, and still continued to assist uh, the prisoners of war at the camp where they could. And this was also done by the local indigenous people, a tribal people called the Dusans. And the Dusan people were all Christian, very pro-British, and on the death march uh, in particular and at the uh, camps at the end of the death march, it was the Dusan people who uh, did what they could to help the prisoners and save the lives of six who actually escaped. So it's early 1945, mm-hmm. 75 years ago. The Japanese have decided that they've got all these surplus prisoners, that, that the camp is no longer where they should be kept, so they're going to march them into the interior and to the other side of Borneo. Just tell us the story of that first march. Well, the first march was split up into groups of about 50 or 55, nine groups each, one day apart. The prisoners were reasonably fit. I mean, the food hadn't become a serious issue just until a few weeks before, and they were all pleased to be leaving the camp because they knew the conditions there were very bad. The Japanese had told them they were going to a much better place, so the ones that were picked were actually quite pleased to be going. And as they went out the camp and went to the main road going down to Sandakan, instead of turning left towards the harbour, they turned right into the interior, and that's when they realised things were not going to be good. Um, they would have had a, f- a very good survival rate had the Japanese been organised enough to have the food dumps um, worked out well in advance uh, through these uninhabited areas. The local people who cut the march uh, track had deliberately rooted it away from any villages because the Japanese were using it and they did not want Japanese troops anywhere near the girls in the village or anywhere near the young men where they could be uh, taken off for slave labour. So the route was, by the way it was worked out, was through an area where you could not get any food. The, the food was de- that the prisoners had was dependent solely upon the food dumps the Japanese had set up. Well, it was all right for the first couple of groups. <laughs> by the time Group 3 turned up, there'd been no replenishment. And just before one very difficult to mountain climb, one group of 49 Australians had six cucumbers to last them for the next four days. And uh, that was a, 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 a period of marching for them over the next four days, which saw five of them shot on, on one particular mountain because they simply could not make the distance. Um, these men were now reduced to crawling on their hands and knees. They knew that if they faltered and couldn't go on, they would be either bayoneted or shot. And uh, that gave them great impetus, of course, to keep going. They didn't know where they were going, had no idea what direction they were going. They couldn't see the sun. It was in thick jungle. Uh, They thought perhaps if they could make the end of the day, they might 
last another day to get home to see mum or their wife or their children, whoever it was. And so that was a great incentive to keep going. But even the strongest ones in the end with, with such a poor food and the gruelling uh, terrain, they were, ma- they were walking uh, 16 kilometres per day, perhaps longer, depended on the situation, and some of them inevitably fell by the wayside. Now, there was a killing squad that came along at the rear, and uh, they killed anybody left behind. But by the same token, the Japanese were killing their own men who could not keep up. Japanese military regulations state that anybody who is in a retreat situation and cannot keep up is to be, quote, disposed of. Disposed of means kill. So they had no compunction about shooting their own men and definitely no compunction about shooting prisoners of war. Of that group... Um, despite the conditions and the lack of food and, and um, being beaten up by guards who were urging them to go faster, three-quarters of it, them made it to their destination, which was a little village on the side of Mount Kinabalu, uh, Southeast Asia's second highest peak. And uh, they were kept there because uh, they couldn't go any further to the West Coast. The Allies were now bombing the West Coast and the Japanese did not want the prisoners of war to be there They wanted to keep them and hold them back. Uh, The hut they were in was by... uh, uh, Not by chance. The hut they were in was um, just simply a native hut, open-sided, and there was not enough room for all the nine groups to fit. So the first uh, five groups went on ahead and the groups six to nine remained at a village about 26 miles away, about 40 kilometres away. Uh, and uh, as uh, as they stayed there for about five weeks, dysentery broke out, and uh, th- that was really debilitating. Um, it wiped out a large number of prisoners of war at that little camp and also wiped out a large number of prisoners at the main camp at Ranau. So after about five or six weeks, enough had died in both places to amalgamate them into the one little camp. How far had this group marched from the from the original camp uh, that's about uh 260 kilometers that's the distance the full distance that's and extraordinary. the first group uh one group did it in 14 days uh the longest i think was uh 17 or 18 days to cover the distance and when they got to the end there was no salvation the conditions there were absolutely horrendous uh, there was not definitely not enough food. Prisoners were reduced from hunger to, t- to if they were lucky enough to find a, an unripe pawpaw growing somewhere in a native garden to steal it and then grate it up and even grate the stalk as well t- to try and get something to eat. Uh, some prisoners were sent back to the village where the second group was waiting with food, not particularly for the prisoners but for the Japanese who were stationed there guarding them. And they were rice-carrying trips of um, uh, 26 miles, 40 kilometres. Um, that took them two days. The sacks weighed about um, 20 kilograms. And they would load up at, at, at Ranau uh, to cross two mountain ranges to reach the little village. Uh, that took them three days to get there. They would then have a rest that afternoon and took them two days because they weren't carrying anything to come back and... Those who were strong enough to go on rice-carrying trips actually had a better chance of survival. Now, the reason that was was because they were, they were now in an area where there were native gardens. So they could steal stuff, they could hope the natives might give them something, 
and they were also uh, very keen on uh, listening out for the local dogs. And at night, when they were supposed to be sleeping at just under the stars on the track, the couple would sneak away and go back to where the dogs were and kill the dogs, and that would give them additional meat. They also um, realised that the rice sacks they were coming, carrying had been stitched with quite big stitching at the bottom of the hessian, and that if you um, took a piece of hollow, thin bamboo and inserted it in the bottom of the stitching and put the other end into your water bottle, you could drain off some rice. So they did this, and that meant that the rice carriers, as long as they didn't get sick, were able to uh, get, get additional food that wasn't possible back at Runner. So... Uh, one of the survivors, Keith Bottrell, he, he did the rice carrying five out of the six trips. He realised that um, there were ample opportunity to steal food, get food, uh, and it got you out of the camp, which people were just dying like flies from dysentery. So that got him out of there for five days, had a two-day rest when they came back, and they'd start again on the Monday, and off they go again for walk number two and three and four and five. There were several transfers of prisoners from the camp across the mountains, weren't yes, there? there the, it, wasn't just, it wasn't just one march. There were several marches yeah, that took place yes, over a period yes, of time. Yes, the first march had the nine groups and they were one day apart. Um, the rest stayed back at the camp and probably would have stayed there, except at the end of May, the Allies really bombed and attacked Sandakan. This was carried out on the 27th of May and it was a tr- strategic, deliberate attack to divert attention away from the west coast of Borneo, where the Allies were going to have a massive invasion on the 10th of June. So the idea was to lull the Japanese into a feeling of false security, for them to believe that any attack was going to come from the nearby Philippines, which were now pretty much in MacArthur's hands, and therefore the big invasion would come from the east. And, of course, the plan was from the west. Now, the plan worked brilliantly from our point of view. The Japanese were convinced that uh, invasion would be within two or three days, and the prisoners were convinced as well. So when um, the Japanese um, realised this, they decided to move 400... Um, how many? 500. Yes, over 500 prisoners who could still walk, and I use the term very loosely, they would move them into the interior to Ranau, where they were making a stronghold for their last stand. 288 who were not capable of going or were ambulance men who were looking after the very sick remained back at the camp and they didn't mind at all because everybody was convinced that within a couple of days landing ships would arrive, paratroopers would be jumping out of aeroplanes and their ordeal would be over. One of the ultimate survivors, one of the six, Nelson Short, had terrible ulcers on his toes so that his, his, his sinews were showing. And one of the people who was to remain at the camp, who had malaria, said to him, Elson, Nelson, don't go. They won't make you walk with feet like that. Stay here. In a couple of days, we're all going to be on a ship, lying between clean ship, uh, sheets and the most gorgeous nurses looking after us. And he decided to go with his mates. And, of course, ultimately that saved his life because nobody who was left at the camp survived. There were 288, uh, about 62 were sent on what was the third march, which was in a bit about the beginning of June, middle, sorry, middle of June, and of those uh, 62 odd that were sent out of the camp, they didn't make it more than 40 miles of marching. They were all dead by the time they reached, reached there. Um, the others um, kept going. The, the local Chinese were very brave and 
pushed food under the wire to them, and so instead of dying very fast, um, they, they hung on. And it was soon obvious that there was going to be no invasion. So the Japanese were told that when the last prisoner of war had died, that they were to go into the interior and join um, the rest of the Japanese forces. Well, the, Japanese, the prisoners took their time dying. To hurry up the process, on the 13th of July... Um, and keep in mind that they'd uh, been in this little sub-camp, just being looked after by a few guards from the end of May, so they're, they're still going OK. 23 looked as if they had no intention of dying. Now, these must have been people who had malaria and had got better, right? They, weren't, they didn't have dysentery or beriberi. And uh, the Japanese um, obviously told them they were going to be evacuated because they left the camp carrying all their possessions. And when they got out to the, where the airstrip was, they were all lined up along a, a ditch and all murdered. Uh, the rest then conveniently died off in dribs and drabs. Uh, one fellow was horribly killed. He was uh, crucified for stealing food. Terrible, terrible story. And um, then eventually uh, the numbers were down to two alive on the night of the 14th of August. And one was a, a tall, skinny fellow from, uh, even skinnier now, of course, from Tenterfield. His name was Johnny Skinner, I found out later after I did some research work on who he could be, and the other one was the complete opposite, short and stocky. And uh, in the next morning, the 15th of August, the short, stocky one had died during the night, and that left uh, Johnny Skinner still left alive. He came out of his shelter, of a um, little tent he had made out of um, uh, blankets and um, uh, old ground sheets. Uh, he, came, he was lying there, and the Japanese came across from their barracks hauled him out, marched him up to the slit trenches where all the ones who died had been buried, blindfolded him, forced him to his knees, and with one tremendous swipe of the sword, the uh, camp commandant that was there decapitated him. Now, that was at 7.15 in the morning on the 15th of August, and five hours later, Emperor Hirohito announced that Japan had unconditionally surrendered. Now, the murder of Johnny Skinner wiped out the last of those who'd remained at Sandakan, which brought the death toll there to 1,400. Most people think that all the prisoners went on the march, but they didn't. The majority of them remained behind at the camp and there wasn't a single solitary person survive. About just over 1,000 left the camp on the three marches and the second march was in much worse shape than the first march. Now, they had ulcers on their legs that were showing their leg bones through. They looked like the pictures people have seen, I'm sure, on TV and in books, um, all their ribs sticking out and, you know, really skeletons with skin over them. That's really what they looked like. Uh, they took a whole month to cover the distance that their, the previous march had taken just over two weeks to do, and the death toll from on the second march was much higher on the actual march itself. About two-thirds died en route. Uh, about one-third reached the far end. When they arrived, they found there were six alive from the first march. Six out of 455 were alive from the first march. And uh, those six joined the 183 survivors of the second march in a remote jungle camp south of Ranau. The Japanese had moved everyone down there because the Allied planes were circling, um, dropping bombs and you know, generally bringing the war much closer. Uh, they kept them there, and um, the usual illness, dysentery broke out. They, they didn't have any shelter. Uh, they started to die in quite, uh, quite large numbers. 
uh, until uh, eventually uh, they all died there uh, at that camp, apart from uh, four who escaped. And they were looked after by local people uh, for some weeks, some of them. Uh, Two had escaped earlier on the death march and they'd been looked after by villagers, Zeusan villagers, uh, living along the river closer to Sundakan. Now, one of those escapees, Braithwaite, he was, picked, he was picked up by villagers quite soon after he escaped and they were able to get him down to an island um, in the um, big bay north of Sundakan where they knew the American PT boats came past regularly to shoot up Japanese camps along the river. So they waited there and they flagged down the um, Japanese, um, the Americans and Braithwaite was the first one rescued and it, it, by the middle of June he was blurting out this story that he with 500 plus people were being marched into the interior and that was the point at which we realised that there was no way now that they could be rescued, it was all just too late. So those two uh, that escaped early on uh, lived to tell the tale. They were taken back to the Americans and looked after. The other four had to remain hiding in the jungle in the mountains up near Ranau until Australian paratroopers um, parachuted in after the war and um, they were taken to safety and uh, they were able to tell the story of what had happened. But the uh, atrocities didn't finish with the decapitation of Johnny Skinner back at um, Sundakan. Uh, there were actually uh, 30, 32, 33, 33 people left alive on the 1st of August and on that day the Japanese decided to murder 17 of them in cold blood. They just killed them. The other 15 that were still alive, they hung on, 10 uh, other ranks and five officers, and uh, they were doing quite well. They were still alive 12 days after the war ended was now the 27th of August. The war had finished on the 15th of August. They were still alive. And the officers were told that they were going to go back to Ranau Town to talk to the Kempi Thai officials there and obviously thought they were going to discuss terms of their release. They knew the war was over. Uh, Allied planes had circled all round dropping leaflets uh, to say war, war was over. Uh, the ten other ranks were told that they were to go to a village to collect some vegetables, and I'm sure they were pleased about that because the food was pretty awful, and the two groups went in separate directions. The five officers were told um, it was a very hot day. Why don't you sit down on the grass here by the side of the track, have a little rest before you go any further? They sat down not realising that it was their last moments on this earth because the guards with them across the other side of the track levelled their rifles and shot every one of them dead. The uh, ten other ranks met the same fate, except they were told they were going to die and they were killed one at a time with a shot through the head just to the south of the camp. So those murders, on, they were murders, terrible. On the 15th of August, 12 days after the war ended, finished off the uh, last of the prisoners of war and brought the death toll for everybody to 2,428 I said earlier that the labour force was up to 2,700, and that was correct. But um, uh, officers and a lot of others were moved to another camp and another 100 were moved off to a separate camp. So that left um, 2,434 people in the camp. And as I said, six people survived, which left the death toll as 2,428. Six survivors out of about 2,500 men. It, it, the, death, the death rate was 99.75%, which makes it Australia's worst disaster of the Second World War. 
I mean, we had ships sink like HMAS Sydney and the Montevideo Maru and hundreds of people drowned, but we didn't have a wipeout like this anywhere. Nowhere even on the Bermatile Railway. The, the deaths up there for Australians were about 2,500, but we had, you know, about 10,000, 12,000 working up there. So um, the Sandakan rates up there as the worst atrocity perpetrated against Australians in the Second World War, and it's one of the least known. It's- you're telling me this story and I'm just in shock. I mean, I'm just sitting here shaking my head. It's, it's the ultimate barbarity against human beings. What happened to the Japanese that, that carried this out? Well, um, the camp commandant, and the, he was hanged, along with the two uh, Japanese officers in charge of the uh, marches. Um, there were another, a number of others were hanged as well. Some were found guilty of brutality rather than murder, because um, the war crimes investigators and the prosecutors were finding that it was very hard to make a murder charge stick. We've only got six survivors, remember? And sometimes if there was insufficient evidence to, to prove a murder, um, the Japanese were let go because that was what the charge was. So they started to dumb down the charges. And uh, where they knew there'd been murder taking place, they put the charge down to brutality. So those Japanese might have got 15 years or 20 years. Some, some of the murderers got life rather than be executed. But in the end, it didn't really matter what it was because, because by 1958, there wasn't a single solitary Japanese war criminal behind bars. And the reason for that was, was the Americans were very keen to get Japan back on its feet, which is the reason why the emperor wasn't charged. And they were very keen to make an alliance with Japan against communist China and communist Russia. So this was the political reason behind um, this supposed goodwill. Um, Australia hung out. We, we pursued war criminals until 1950. The English and the British, had, the British, sorry, and the Americans had long given up. We were still after it. The Americans were hounding us to stop bringing people to trial, but the Australian government was adamant that we're going to make these people pay. And consequently, the last of the great war criminals involved with us were hanged up at Manus Island in 1951. We kept those in... Um, that were sentenced to terms of imprisonment there, and then the pressure was put on us to allow them to go back to Japan, where they could stay in Sagamo Prison in Japan so they could see their relatives, which I think is the ultimate irony, considering the punishment that had been meted out to our prisoners of war, you know, this was being very soft line was being taken. Eventually we were forced to do that and um, by 1958, because of various petitions for leniency, there wasn't a single solitary war criminal left in Sugamo prison in Tokyo and the prison was um, destroyed. So when we today in Australia, where we have POW relatives who are very bitter against the Japanese punishments and, and what was actually were made to serve, I can understand why. Because if you were lucky enough, Japanese, to be tried in 1950, even if you got a life sentence, the maximum you were going to serve would be eight years. And the maximum that any prisoner, who or any Japanese prisoner served, was 13 years. So you, there, you need to know this to understand why there's still a lot of um, bitterness amongst relatives, they really don't think justice has been done. One of the 
controversial chapters of this whole saga was that there was talk at various stages during the war of uh, an Allied invasion to liberate the camps, and that never occurred. Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and the story behind that and why it's controversial. Um, well, I don't think it's controversial because I know why it didn't take place. But um, back in 1944, when those eight, that I, well, there were six alive still, two had got killed fighting Japanese, were taken back to Australia and they told the story of the camp and what was going on, a plan was put, for, put up in the middle of 1944 to send in paratroopers to rescue these prisoners of war. Now... General MacArthur was in charge of the whole area, so you couldn't do a thing in his patch without him saying that it was okay. And he endorsed this plan. Uh, the people involved in Special Operations Australia uh, were commando-type people who were going to be inserted behind the lines. They had very good plans worked out, but for some reason the hierarchy dithered around for ages and uh, missed the monsoon. Now, when the monsoon season starts in Southeast Asia, you cannot land people from submarines or do anything like that. And so they missed that window of opportunity and they had to wait until the conditions got better, which was in the following January. A series of terrible... Oh, it was total mess. Um, Stuff-ups is the word I'd use. Uh, took place, which meant that the um, specialised team going to go in at the end of January didn't actually get there until March... When they did get there, um, some bright spark had decided instead of sending a specialised team in to collect the intelligence for the rescue plan from the prisoner of war camp, that everybody could go into a new insurgent spot a long way to the north of Sundaka. Now, the party leader, because there are just only five or six in the group, the party leader said that this was sheer lunacy, there's no way he could, he could do this reconnaissance work from up there, and he was told to use the local people to gather intelligence, uh, which he had done on a previous mission in the further south in Borneo the previous year. So he, he made the contacts, the locals um, were quite happy to help collect intelligence, and they set up a line of communication between Sandakan area and where the Australians were based. There was one big problem, though. The Japanese um, had decreed that anybody who came within 400 metres of any prisoner of war was death. And so the locals were very, very frightened about making any contact with anybody at the camp. So they relied on people living on the outskirts of Sandakan to give them information. And these people reported that... Hundreds of prisoners of war had gone marching past their houses into the interior in January, the end of January and into February. Now, these people were numerically illiterate. It must have looked like a lot of people. You've got 455 at least going past, plus all the Japanese troops going with them that are being evacuated, going along. And the word that came back to us right up in the jungle, miles away from the action, was that the camp had been evacuated and that uh, they expected confirmation within a fortnight. Well, within a fortnight, which was about... The, the first message came out at the beginning of April. In the middle of uh, April, about the 10th or 11th, a second message came through from our, our people in the field to say that they'd received uh, confirmation that there was nobody left at the camp at Sandakan, and the party leader uh, recommended bombing at the... F earliest convenience which meant that now our prisoners were now going to be starting to be bombed by our own side and some actually died as a result of that bombing so the plan here in australia was um 
was they were they were very perturbed. They said that in, in light of the information received about the prisoners of war, the behind the lines party would now be doing other things. So they went off and did other things. The paratroopers who were uh, practicing and been held up at the Atherton Table and in Queensland were all sent on leave. A fleet of um, ships which had been detached, the British ships, which had been detached from MacArthur's South West Pacific Fleet, were all sent back from Leyte Gulf in the Philippines where they were waiting with their landing ships infantry to evacuate people. And an Australian squadron which was sent to Moratai, we had our own aircraft, we had sufficient aircraft waiting there for the paratroopers to come, were sat around the swimming in the lagoon for a fortnight and were all sent back to Australia because everybody believed that there was nobody left in the camp and it wasn't until Braithwaite was picked up when he escaped early on the 2nd March and was taken back to the Philippines and blurted out this story was that everybody realised that the intelligence was completely faulty and it was now too late. It was just too late. They'd all gone into the interior and... um, the whole rescue mission fell apart. Now, I it's controversial because some people don't believe it could be carried out. Now, I believe it could be. The guards that were left at Sandakan were very described by the Japanese as third-rate. Um, there were very good drop zones. And had we received last-minute intelligence, had somebody locally or from our secret group gone in and made contact with the prisoners of war... They then could have had the last-minute intelligence to know when was a good time to mount this mission. And in actual fact, the Americans had tested our plan in a place called Los Banos in the Philippines in in, uh, February that year, uh, using one-third the paratroops, 200, we had 600, uh, one-quarter the aircraft. They parachuted in at 600 feet at uh, quarter to seven in the morning, having found out from ground agents that the Japanese were doing PT in their undies at that time of the morning and that all their arms were in the barracks. The paratroopers came into the camp and within 15 minutes had secured the camp and liberated it. 2,000 people and not a single solitary prisoner of war was lost in that um, mission. Two paratroopers were killed. So... The plan had been tested. Americans had shown that it could be done. But the big difference between the American rescue and our planned rescue was that we didn't have that last-minute intelligence. Nobody actually went up to the camp to find out where the machine guns were, where the guard huts were, anything else. And therefore, um, the mission just fell apart because as far as Australia was concerned, there was nobody left in the camp to, to rescue. Lynette, this whole sad traumatic tale do do we in australia know enough about it i mean there's a feeling that everyone knows the name of sandakan everyone sort of knows that there was a march do do we remember it in the right way well i don't i don't think that's correct um i mean i've taken i spent the last 30 years trying to raise the profile of sandakan um, and, you know, with a group of 14 little relatives in 1999, we held the first Anzac Day service there. And it took me about eight years to build up enough interest by talking to the ABC and the Sydney Morning Herald and, you know, just generally on radio to eventually get the Australian government to realise that 
that this was something worth doing. And so now there is a commemoration each year on Anzac Day. But most people look blankly at you, say Borneo, and they don't even know where it is, let alone Sundakan. So although we've raised the profile a bit, it's no, it's not on the nation's lips in the same way as we've got Kokoda or Gallipoli or El Alamein or any of the, the Western Front, all of those big names that we know. This is a very neglected part of our history, and the reason for that is twofold. The first is that when eventually we got our people in there after the war and they went there with high hopes of finding people at the Sundakan camp or at the prison camps and when they discovered that everybody was dead except for six and that the circumstances of the death were, for some were horrific, the government with the army decided that this was all too terrible to put on to relatives of these prisoners of war who'd spent since February 15th, 1942, when Singapore fell, wondering about the fate of their prisoners. So therefore, they would just tell them that they died while prisoner of war in Borneo, and that's exactly what the telegram said. The relatives tried to, to get um, those in authority to have meetings with them to give them more information. It was a silence. N no one was saying anything. Now, that was not sinister, it was a, a poorly advised paternalistic attitude. They thought that they were, the authorities thought that they were saving these relatives from more heartache, but in actual fact they were compounding it because they wanted to know what had happened. And because nothing was said, the worst case scenario, because ultimately little bits did leak out, it was known eventually, because of the war crimes, that um, one prisoner one prison had been beheaded. But that was one out of nearly 2,500. He was the only one. Because no information was given out, that became the norm. Stories about the death march came out how about people had been shot. That, therefore, everybody got shot. And there's a plaque on a memorial over there in Sundakan put up by Bruce Ruxton and the Victorian RSL, which says categorically... 2,700, which is the wrong number, Australians and British prisoners of war were marched to death on a death on a death march. So what we have is 2,700 people being killed on a death march when really 1,000 went on the march and of that half got to where they were going and the other half died on the way and the majority never left the camp. So you can see the story's already getting very distorted. But because of that, we've had huge distortions of the story and we've had relatives who've not found out anything. That was what I, that's why I call my book Sandakana Conspiracy of Silence because there was a conspiracy to withhold information from families. The other side was more sinister. That was Special Operations Australia's side, which was headed by General Blaney. He actually headed this group. And when they discovered that this rescue mission, which had been called off, had been wrongly called off, and that everybody had been left to die irrespective... Um, the special operations files were filleted. And uh, this is why I got interested in the story, because I found a, that small document that said, in view of the news about the prisoners of war, that the special party will now be diverted to other areas of investigation. And I thought, what news about the prisoners of war? So I went down to Canberra, and I uh, thought about it on the way and I realised that 
Uh, the only thing we knew about this rescue mission was that General Blamey in 1947, at a reunion dinner for the paratroopers, had said categorically, when he's asked the question, why were we training up on the Atherton Tableland? And he said, oh, there was a plan to rescue the prisoners of war, but fate decreed otherwise. Just as we were ready to go in, all the aircraft were required by a higher authority. Now, the higher authority had to be General MacArthur, so he moved the blame for this on a MacArthur, and MacArthur had had the blame for this failed rescue mission because he was so mean-spirited that he hadn't given us 30 aircraft out of the 600 he had. And that was tremendously suspicious to me because General MacArthur loved people to love him and he, he had plenty of aeroplanes and he, I knew because the work I'd done in the mission, on the mission that he had sanctioned this rescue plan from the beginning, middle of 1944. So why would he, with only two weeks to go, say, no, you're not having any aircraft? So this all sent me down to Canberra. I got into the working file of the um, rescue mission called Operation Kingfisher and it was the neatest operational file I'd ever seen. I'd seen hundreds of them in the work I'd done. And I was, went through it and I'm thinking, where's the intelligence reports coming out of the field? Who's in the field? According to this file, there's nobody in the field. And I knew they were there. Where are all the movement orders? Where are all the intelligence summaries? Where are the signals coming out of the field? Because this was a working file. And I realised that although... In that file were all, all the plans on how to rescue the prisoners right down to the loading of the aircraft. That's how good the file was. There was nothing on the secret side. And I thought, somebody has removed this, removed the information. And I nearly gave up, but I realised that the, nobody, even the secret side of uh, war, keeps one copy of anything. So I started to look through secondary files which couldn't be filleted because they contained multiple amounts of information on reports. And lo and behold, it's 17 minutes past three in the afternoon, I remember it distinctly looking at my watch, I found a decoded signal which said, we have reliable information from a village chief that all prisoners of war have been moved from Sundakan to the west coast of Borneo. We expect confirmation within a fortnight. And my heart dropped to the floor. I felt sick, physically sick. And I thought, they can't believe, they cannot believe they've all gone because it was the 2nd of April. And I only knew the, I knew the first march had gone. So I went through the file and there was a second uh, signal decoded from the field that said, we now confirm there are no prisoners of war left to Sundercard. And that's when I realised that... Um, that this, this filleting of this information had been very deliberate at a secret operations level. Um, it was very easy to keep, keep it quiet because secret operations ceased to exist the minute the war finished. Uh, anybody who had been with them was bound by a, a code of secrecy that lasted for years. And so this was very, very easy to suppress that there had been this diabolical disaster and that this rescue mission had been, you know, just hopelessly planned and carried out, not carried out, and that we'd lost... Um, well, at the time they should have been rescued, there were about a 1,000 left, left alive. Um, so that was, that was the second um, strand of the conspiracy of silence. One, one was from being an act of kindness that went wrong. The second one was very, very deliberate. So we know that Australians don't remember this, as they should. If you had your way, what would the legacy of these death marches be? Well, the legacy of the death marches has actually come, a, come across uh, in a real way 
by um, the families of the prisoners of war. They're the ones that have left, left the legacy. They felt so bereft that these men had been neglected, not remembered, that uh, they joined with me in a couple of initiatives that we've got over there in Sabah. The first was to put in fabulous stained glass memorials windows in the stone Anglican church at Sandakan where the prisoners spent the night when they came off the hill ship from Singapore before they were marched to their final captivity and death. They all spent the night in this beautiful church. It was built like a cathedral. So stained glass windows were put in there and those windows were also as a thanksgiving to the local people who gave their lives in some circumstances to help them. And these people had not been recognised either, so we had a, a, a two, two prongs here. Um, that went on, and, and that raised the profile of the Sundakan story a bit. I discovered that there were uh, very talented Doosan girls living in the interior who had no hope of going past the end of primary school because their families were subsistence farmers or fishermen on the big rivers, and therefore they had no hope of a life outside the village. As soon as they got 16, they'd be married off to somebody. So we set up the Sandakar Memorial Scholarship Trust. Uh, in the beginning, we started off very small. I, I was giving talks to people who wanted to hear about Sandakan and not asking for any fee or any travel expenses, just asking for a donation, and it started to snowball. We um, got people very interested in this, particularly the relatives of POWs, and now the trust is... Um, fully-fledged trust. We have up to 16 girls per year um, now being educated um, to, to up to the end of secondary school. Um, we've had um, a large number, about 11 or 12 so far, graduate a tertiary level, the last one with a degree in biotechnics. Now, these are girls who would have been condemned just to live in the village, get married and have babies, and the whole poverty cycle would start again. Uh, so this is the great legacy, and that's why it's called the Sandakan Memorial Scholarship Trust. We also have a lot of other initiatives which people can see on my website, uh, which I won't go into. But the legacy, that legacy has come from the POWs. The other legacy that the prisoners of war have left us is this amazing legacy of friendship and um, being bound to the local people. Because we all suffered terribly the local people and our prisoners of war suffered terribly in the second world war that was the beginning of the wall that was going to friendship wall that was going to be built then australia came in after the war um although uh, british north borneo as it was called then now called sabah was under british control it was the australian government who rewarded those who'd helped prisoners of war given them food sheltered them saved their lives and for the eight local people who were executed for um, helping us in the camp, those widows were given a pension. Now, this came from the Australian government, so this raised our stocks considerably, as you can imagine, because the British weren't giving them anything. Then uh, we went into the area of the, um, of the emergency, Malayan emergency, and the confrontation in uh, 1963, when after the British went, there was a power vacuum left and the Indonesians were going to come and take over British North Borneo and Sarawak. Australia sent troops there, as did other Commonwealth countries, and once again, Australia had come to the help of the locals, as we had done, which I forgot to say, at the end of the war, because Australia liberated Sabah. The 9th Division went in and we, we, we invaded um, 
all of Borneo, and then we were the occupation troops and we brought all the food in and, and looked after all the local people. So now we're, this wall of friendship we're building, building's getting higher and higher. It's got a very good foundation from the prisoners of war, but now it's getting better and better. So we've got the confrontation. And then in the 70s, it was Australian money and know-how that built the roads. And so um, Australians were over there for a lot. We had a lot of contact. And now when you go over there and they see... the a lot of our group, you know, they have a little flag on or something. The locals will say, oh, you are from Australia. Welcome to Sabah. Now, they really mean it. They don't mean that around the corner I've got this, my very nice sister, very nice, you know, going to cost so much, uh, as you do in other countries. They really mean it. They don't want any money. Um, they'll give you the shirt off their backs. And so the real legacy that we've got from our prisoners themselves is this incredible bonds of friendship, which no other country enjoys the way we enjoy it. It's, it's really incredibly tight, and um, people here now that know about the story um, recognise that it's a two-way street. Back, in, back during the war, the locals did what they could to help us. Um, now, I have no trouble at all getting funds to help our people over there. We've we built a, a little a preschool in a very poor village. It's been fully equipped. Um, when there was an earthquake over there and houses were destroyed in one of the villages, um, the government in Sabah wasn't helping. The, these p- village people had no insurance. And I sent an SO out, SOS out through my network here and said, look, you know, want to help? And the money poured in. Uh, sufficient money for us to provide all the building materials to build the destroyed houses in this little Doosan village because the Doosan people actually did the building. So this is ongoing and, and I hope that, you know, long, up, long after I'm pushing up daisies, the, uh, the friendship that was started off by our, by our POWs and has been um, nurtured and swelled by our Australians here that are interested in the story, especially families, I hope that those benefits are going to go on for years and years and years to come. Well, it's wonderful work, Lynette. If people want to find out more about it or contribute, where where, where can they find out more just about your work? Just look on my website, www.lynettesilver.com, and it says Contact Lynette. So you just contact me. And if you look on there, you'll see lots of the initiatives that we've um, we've done in memory of these POWs, such as the, the preschool and the scholarship trust and the windows and piles of reading. You could probably spend two or three weeks reading it. And look on there, and if anyone feels moved enough, Oh, yes, sure, contact me. And um, and also, hopefully, um, they might feel inspired to go over to Sabah themselves and just to see what a wonderful little country it is and how friendly the people are. They're just amazing. That's very well said. Lynette Silver, thank you so much yes. for joining us to tell us this uh, this tragic story. Thank you. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.